This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 10. Today's special guest, Starlight Skies. This episode is sponsored by the Game Dev Field Guide patrons. Everyone gets a extra episode, a bonus episode every month, and it goes out to free for everybody, and it's thanks to the generosity of the patrons. If you would like to become a patron and support the show, as well as vote on episode topics, I'll leave a link in the show notes. This episode is actually the bonus episode for December. There will be another one this month, and... I know the schedule's a little weird right now, but there will be a normal episode of the Game Dev Field Guide this Friday. So I think that makes four episodes this month, so it should be pretty jam-packed, and I'm looking forward to catching back up. Anyways, without further ado, let's jump on over to the first segment of the show. For the first segment of the show, we're going to play Buff Debuff. This is sort of a rapid-fire game where... Listeners suggest topics, and I don't do really any research or write down any notes. I just react to the topics right away, and I'll say if they're buffed or debuffed. And when I say buffed, I mean things that are good or generally trending up. And when I say debuff, I think those things um, could be a little better, I guess. The first topic of the day is gore, particularly if the game is not centered completely completely around violence. I think gore is buffed, I guess, but it has to be for the right audience, and it has to be done, I don't know if tastefully is the right word, but it has to be done with purpose. In a game that's not totally centered around violence, I think it could be like a really effective shock factor piece of visual storytelling. In a game that is centered around violence, I think you even then, unless you're going for like horror, I don't think the gore can be too realistic. And this is actually something I heard in an interview with Hugo Martin, who is a game designer, game director actually, of the new Doom games. And what he said was that in Doom, the gore has to be turned up almost cartoonishly. It has to appear almost cartoonishly and have like cartoonish uh, violence because if they made realistic gore it's actually really off-putting and kind of takes the player out of the game like they had experimented and play tested i think he said with um more realistic gore and it was actually just like instead of making the player feel i don't know like they're in an action movie or giving off sort of that metal Uh, vibe that doom has it was actually kind of like making people disgusted a little bit because it was too realistic so i think that's something really interesting um like i said if you're gonna do gore if it's gonna be part of your game if it's a violent game maybe take those words from obviously one of the best in the business make it a little bit more cartoonishly and not so realistic and yeah it just comes down to a lot of things in game dev which is kind of knowing your audience and knowing what you're going for. That golden rule I talk about all the time of what kind of feelings are you trying to evoke. If you're making a horror game where you're trying to make someone extremely unsettled, 
maybe realistic gore is good, but yeah, you just gotta know your audience, I guess. So when used correctly, I think gore is buffed. The next topic is the bullet hell genre in general. If you don't know what a bullet hell game is, or uh, sometimes I think they're called shoot 'em ups they're those kinds of games where there's like a million bullets on the screen and you're just trying to dodge them. And oftentimes the bullets have like crazy and visually impressive patterns and shapes on the screen. Um, you can think of games like there's one on Steam that's been pretty popular. Uh, I don't know about lately, but I remember it being pretty popular. It's called Just Shapes and Beats, which is kind of like one of those geometry shooters with really good music. You could think of some of the roguelite games like Enter the Gungeon or Binding and Isaac. Those games, especially the boss fights, have bullet hell features, I guess you could say. But what do I think of the bullet hell genre for indie devs? I think it is buffed, but with some caveats. So the reason I think it's buffed is because I think the project scope of bullet hells can be pretty small, so good and achievable for indie devs. And I think it's the niche kind of thing that an indie dev can really excel at and stand out because it's such a niche community and you don't need like super advanced technology or huge workflow or anything to get it done as opposed to something like a MMO, for instance. So for those reasons, I think they're good for indie devs. But I do think it's one of those genres that is all about the challenge and getting that difficulty curve right can be pretty challenging for a intermediate or early on game dev. Now that certainly shouldn't stop you from trying. The only way you're going to learn how to properly pace the difficulty in a shoot 'em up or bullet hell is to make them and get feedback on your games. But yeah, I think it's one of those genres that looks super simple from the surface and setting one up would be super simple, sort of like a 2D platformer. But to make a good one, you really have to understand the difficulty and the challenge and the pacing and the little intricacies that makes it fun, which is certainly something you can learn and maybe it's something I'll do a deep dive episode on at some point. But yeah, I think uh, the bullet hell genre in general is buffed. Next, we have a little bit of current events, and this might actually be a little bit older. These are some older topics sent in, but... The next topic is that Unity acquires Weta Digital. Unity, of course, being the game engine that a lot of us use. It's the one I am most familiar with. It's the one I make all my games with. And Weta Digital is a visual effects studio. I think it's actually Peter Jackson's visual effects studio that they use for Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes. This article says they did stuff for Game of Thrones. And anyways, it's a big visual effects studio. And this says that Unity has acquired the company and all of their tools. Now, I haven't seen anything in Unity that indicates we'll be getting, like, CGI tools. But I could certainly see Unity trying to expand into the CGI and visual effects area. And that's simply because Unity is a publicly traded company now. And they're going to look for places to grow. We see them doing this with their VR and, uh, I guess, XR stuff. And I would not be surprised at all if they got into the visual effects space, especially with one of their biggest competitors, Unreal, starting to get into Hollywood's visual effects. If Unity does for game devs what the Unity engine does, maybe they can do that with um, 
you know, visual effects artists. You could have a really high quality piece of software for free, although I think Blender probably already is in that space, but more free software that's high quality. Um, that is, if it's free, if that's the case, it'll be buffed. If it turns into something that Unity is trying to kind of awkwardly package into their game engine, um, like some of the other things they've added and just add to the bloat of Unity, I think it'll be debuffed. But we're going to have to wait and see what happens with that. Next, we have a sort of quick fire round all related to multiplayer topics. The first one being player collisions. This is, should you be able to run into other players or go through them in multiplayer games? And I think it really depends on the game, but I'm going to say that player collisions... Ooh, this is a tough one. I'm going to say player collisions are buffed because I think it can make for interesting gameplay where like you have to position yourself in the right spots. Although I realize it can be really great way for players to grief other players or just in general be annoying maybe not even knowing so like in an mmo for instance imagine if you go to the auction house and it's full of people and you can't walk through the people so maybe in those situations um, you would want to turn player collisions off but i really like the game design concepts that come from having player collisions on especially in shooters I think it's no secret I like sort of tactical competitive shooters and knowing where to position and not be in your teammates way and not tripping over each other's feet is like a huge part of those games and something I would miss if it was gone. So for me, player collisions are buffed. Next is having limited resources and quests in multiplayer games. Again, I'm going to take it to a World of Warcraft example. I think it was in WoW Classic. Some of the quest items were on a delay or there was a limited amount of them. And so people would literally line up <laughs> to receive the quest item. Which is cool that people had the respect for each other and I guess the game to do that. I mean, no one's forcing them to get in line. I gotta imagine that limited quest items are probably a thing of the past and should not be in games now unless it's specifically designed to be something scarce. So I'm going to say limited quest items are probably debuffed. You could play around with like an interesting economy where things have scarcity, um, but we've seen how that kind of have, has worked out in Amazon's new... MMO, I think it's called New World, but basically players had figured out a duplication glitch which had thrown the whole economy out of whack, and because it was based on having scarce items like this, it was just kind of a big mess that has basically ruined the economy of the game, which is a core feature of how it works. So yeah, I think for now, if I was developing a game, and as an indie game dev, you probably won't make an MMO, uh, but if you're going to... Unless you want to learn a whole bunch about how economies work and design smartly around scarce resources and scarce quest items, I think you just make them unlimited. Next topic is being able to see quest progress or progress towards achievements. I think this is buffed in pretty much all cases. This is one I don't really even have to think about. Anytime you can give your player more feedback on how things are going, even if you just some text like you have one of three or you're this close to leveling up any kind of numerical data you can give your player 
on how things are going, I think is almost always buffed because it's just feedback. And we know how we've talked about in the past, how important feedback is the kind of juice, I guess, that comes with it. If your player is doing something good or doing something right, you want to let them know and you want to be kind of drip feeding them this positive information so that they can feel like they're progressing. And the last multiplayer topic we have is being able to skip cutscenes. And I think the context of this is being like in a party. Let's say you're in a party of four and one person doesn't want to watch the cutscene, but the other one does. Who decides what happens to the person who isn't watching? What do they do? I think being able to skip cutscenes as a party is buffed so long as each person gets to choose. And this kind of goes back to Bartle's player types and uh, just the different kinds of players you'll have in a game. Some will appreciate story more than others. Some will want to get straight to the gameplay. I think as long as you give everyone the option to do what they want without hindering too much of the other player. Like I understand someone's watching a cutscene and you have to wait for them. That's kind of a maybe break in the pacing, but just don't make a cutscene that's like 30 minutes long, and I think you'll be fine. I think everyone would be fine with waiting. Um, if you're playing with your friends or even a random four people, I think most people would be fine with waiting, you know, under two minutes or whatever the cutscene's going to be. And the last topic we have today is the idea of something being good enough. And this is the idea of deciding when your game is good enough to release um, kind of versus like polishing every little thing and I think good enough is buffed and almost required and I think this is an important concept for every indie game dev to learn and one that I still struggle with myself because you try to chase this like perfect game uh, because in your head the game is always perfect but it's the execution that everyone else sees. And for some people, including me, I think we struggle with the game in your head is never the game that you can make because it's just really hard. It's a lot of work for one person to do. And it gets back to that skill of sc managing your scope of your game. And I think a lot of people might even look at something like the Game Dev Field Guide and say, well, here's, here's the blueprints to how to make the perfect game. You know, if you just went through all the things I said and said, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff and I'm going to have the perfect game, what you're going to realize is you will never have the time or the experience or maybe even the talent to pull off all of the best features of the game. You can't have the best art and the best programming and the best game design. You can maybe if you hire the best people for all of those things, but how many of us indie devs can hire the best of the best and operate like an actual game studio a lot of times as an indie dev it's you doing most if not all of the work so yeah you have to pick and choose and play to your strengths if you're a good game designer make sure your game design is really good and just get passable art or good enough art now i will say the bar for good enough art is pretty high so you kind of have to also evaluate the audience and your goals for the game maybe good enough art is okay for a game jam versus good enough art if you want a commercially successful game you know those are two different good enoughs again going back to the scoping of your project i think good enough is buffed and you have to do it as an indie dev and you have to pick those things that you're going to say okay these are my strengths and this is what i want the game to be the best at 
And these are the other things where I'm going to have to make some compromises because short-staffed or short on money or short on talent. And that's just the reality of being an indie game dev. So yeah, that's all the buff debuff segments uh, for today. I have a list ready to go for the next one, which will also be another bonus episode coming out this month. So yeah, it shouldn't be long before we play again. Um, If you have ideas for topics or things you want to hear the buff debuff on, uh, just go on over to our community Discord. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And there's a buff debuff channel, and you can just write whatever you want in there. With that out of the way, let's move on over to the second segment of the show. As always, the second segment of a bonus episode is a key thought from a special guest. Today's special guest is Starlight Skies. You can find her on Twitter at Starlight Skies. Um, I'll leave all the links for her stuff in the show notes as well if you want to go check that out. But yeah, she's really knowledgeable, has spent a while in the game industry, kind of more focused on the marketing and business side of game dev. And she's got a key thought today in that vein. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Starlight Skies. Hello, I'm Starlight Skies, but you can call me Star. You can find me with the same name on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Just a little background first, I've been working in games for a decade. I started in art, but have mostly focused on marketing, content creation, and business operations for indies. There is a lot of good wisdom out there for game development itself, but today I wanted to go outside of that. A big focus that I have coming into any company is looking at business monetization plans and how they could have more reach outside of the studio. Many inexperienced game studios are so focused on just the game itself that they miss out on opportunities they could be having with content creators and other businesses. You do want to be connected to the bigger industry. You do want to create a community if you plan on being a long-term commercial game developer because where is your audience out there and you want them to find your game. They have to be the ones to purchase it. Many think that they don't, but that's because they don't know the details behind all of these successful indies that have had a boost from something. And that could be from their trailer at the Game Awards, a spot at the Mix, or a previous relationship with a big content creator. Many of these indies don't talk about all the conversations and meetings they had, and the kind of collaborations they've done before their present success. Just making a Steam page and asking for wishlists isn't enough for most developers. Recently, I saw a tweet from a developer asking, if this is just for fun, then why am I putting so many hours into this, talking about the pressure of releasing a game? I responded with, because we learned how to make a game, but not the business behind making a studio. It's just not something that we often talk about. So the discussion we do have so often is, how much are we getting out of this as a person? Why is game development so hard to be sustainable? Now, there are obvious reasons for that, but instead of focusing on issues from bigger companies and gamers, I want to talk about what developers can control. I've been searching for an answer of what this is, and what I've come up with will not work for everyone. Not everyone is going to agree with this. It's, it may be controversial, but I do believe it's time to have a shift in our collective mindset. We need some fresh ideas because what it is now is just not working. So this is what I think 
might though. For me, there's two paths that can work for indies. The first one, the first path, is commercial game development. It's someone that looks at the market and sees what people are buying and what they aren't. And they can tell, they know exactly why people are buying certain games and, you know, what something, why something isn't hitting. And this is really important because commercial game developers, they just have this intuition, they have experience, so they know how to choose the projects that they do to have the most success, which makes it easier for them. They don't go fully into a project unless they see some kind of like positive reception from an audience. And this could look like 100 likes on a Twitter, like a tweet, uh, articles, or a very successful Kickstarter. See, the benefit is that if they're working on a project and they can just tell that it's just not working out, then they're not going to waste their time on it. They're not going to spend years working on something to completion and polish it and optimize it and put all this time and money into it if they know they're not going to get returns out of it, they know that other people aren't going to enjoy it. So they stop that and they start something else. But some developers are so popular that they don't even need to do this because their name itself is enough to just make sales because they've built up a reputation from people that they are a good developer so people will trust that the game is good. They also have contacts within the industry, they know who to talk to, they have experience of getting people's attention. So. This is the second path that I recommend to developers, and that is hobby game developer, which means that you're just making games for fun. Uh, there are a lot of benefits to this, and no, you don't make money, but it allows you to do almost anything. It's, it's freedom. You don't have to rely on platforms. You can just put your game on your own site or not share it with anyone. You don't even have to finish your game. If you're not feeling it, then you can move on to something else. You're just making the games to make some games. This is why game jams are so popular. You learn without having to feel pressure. With commercial games, there is a lot of pressure. You have a team, publishers, friends, and families all expecting the games. And since there's money involved, it's not just a creative outlet, it's now a business. Making a game is not enough to make money. And a lot of developers, again, we're not talking about the business side enough or we're not paying attention to the business side enough as we should, as much as we're paying attention to the development side. So there is a third path and this is the one that I highly recommend that people stay away from. Again, this is just my opinion. And I like to call this the middle road where you are making whatever it is that you want to make without doing the research and like you're selling it like it's a commercial game. Let me give you some examples. Maybe they have a great marketable premise, but they haven't planned out the details and it could get stuck in development hell. Maybe you are this developer or you have a friend like this who's been working on the same game for year after year after year and for some reason it's just, it's just not getting done and sometimes these games will be done, but they're not what the developer wanted, not what they expected. Maybe they are making something fun, but it's not really attractive, so not many people get to play it. Maybe they are making the same game that's been done a hundred times before and people feel like they've already seen it. Maybe they've made an amazing game, but they just don't know how to show it to people. There are so many ways to get stuck on this middle road and I just want people to be free of it. And yeah, there's going to be problems for sure, but as developers, I think we talk more about problems than the solutions. And that's probably because the industry changes so often. 
So I would recommend that you're keeping in touch with other devs and being active in communities so that you're not falling behind. Making sure you're committed to being a commercial or hobby developer is really important. Just trying things out and hoping you'll be successful almost never works. Commercial game developers, they do plan things out. They have a guideline, a pipeline. They know like what they're doing, what they're focused on. And there, I mean, there can be curveballs. There can be things that come in your way. Um, but you can also have enough experience where you know how to prevent fires before they happen. One thing you can control for sure is having an honest look at your project and see what others are selling. Compare those and ask yourself, like, would I buy my own game? Would I buy this? Are publishers knocking at your door? Do you have hundreds of likes per tweet? Have journalists written articles? Has anyone asked you to submit their showcase? If your project isn't getting attention, then getting sales is going to be even harder. If you want to be a commercial developer with sustainability in this industry, you have to talk with others, be humble, flexible, current to the times now, focus on what you really want and make things that other people can relate with. Passion is just isn't enough. I believe that most developers can do this, but again, it's like all about your priorities. You will have to make compromises. And I can tell you as a marketer that I cannot sell every game. I can't force people to buy anything, just like no one can make you buy a certain game. I want to have a more positive movement towards hobby game development, one where people don't have to be completely stressed out to make games, where they can make what they want and they don't have to worry about marketing. They can just be an artist expressing themselves. Thank you, I'm Starlight Skies, and I hope you can check out my YouTube channel if you want to hear more. And there you have it, some great thoughts by Star, especially one that hit home for me was the benefits of just being a hobby game dev. I think sometimes we get into this place where we see commercial game dev as like the pinnacle for an indie. It's the dream to quit your job and make games full time. But Star's right, it comes with a ton of pressure and I don't think it's for everyone. And in a lot of ways, I kind of miss um, back when I was a hobby game dev and I could just make whatever I want. I didn't have to worry about promoting my games. I didn't have to worry about even finishing the game. Sometimes I would just make something for myself just to see if it was fun. So yeah, I thought that was a really great insight by Star. If you want to check out her YouTube channel or her Twitter, I'll leave all the links in the show notes. So it'll be really easy to just scroll down there and click on those. I'm sure she would be open to any questions if you want to send her a dm on twitter or tweet at her um you can always tweet any of your game dev questions to me at underscore zaccavelli underscore i also have been streaming on twitch uh occasionally game dev stuff sometimes some other stuff that's twitch.tv slash zaccavelli underscore and yeah like i said look out for a main episode of the game dev field guide coming out this friday and i guess with that said i'll see you there